Good morning. Stop me if you've heard this one. It's like the Apostles' Creed. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to one another, as he teaches in the Bible and as other religions teach as well. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. You guys ever heard that? Does it sound familiar? Does that sound wrong? <laughs> I don't know. Sounds pretty good to me. So this came from a book called The Soul Searching, The Religious Lives of American Teenagers. It was written in 2005 by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, and they did research, I think it was at UNC Chapel Hill, where they wrote this book, and they researched you, every one of you, right? Well, not every one of you. They researched your generation, because this is in 2005, so that means you would be in the late 20s now maybe a little older. And what they wanted to do is understand how Christian kids thought. What they thought about three things, God, life, and the Bible. What, what do you think about this? And these are not kids that have been, in, these are like Christian kids. These are kids that would proclaim faith, many of them, and some of them not. But this is basically what they all said, which is interesting to me, because some aspects of it are a little bit like the Apostles' Creed, but it seems like there's a different flavor there. And if you grew up in America, you actually know this creed. You know it by heart. I know it. <laughs> we do. So regardless of whether you're a Christian, whether you profess faith in Christ, whether you're just working your way back to the church, this is a creed you're familiar with. You know it by heart. The reason I share that with you today is because we're in the middle of Revelation. And Revelation has been systematically unhinging our idea of God and life and of me, right? Who am I? And then rebuilding something that's much more riskier, much more glorious, where the stakes are incredibly high and nobody's really neutral and nobody's just kind of walking through life. And so it puts, it puts these thoughts in a dangerous place, doesn't it? If you are an American and grew up here, in many ways, this is your creed. And I don't even know if it's a bad thing. But let's let Revelation 12 speak to us. And if you're new, we've been going through Revelation for some time. Here's the thing about Revelation. Nobody really wants to read it. Nobody really wants to preach it. Because it's hard to, it, this is what we've, we've thought about Revelation. It's hard to understand. And if you get it wrong, you get it really wrong. And it's dangerous. And you know what? So why even bother? There's so many other, 65 other good books of the Bible. Let's just leave Revelation at the end. It'll all work out somehow. 
But Revelation starts by saying, this is meant to be a blessing to the saints, so read it and believe it. I'm convinced it may be the most important book that you read this year. So, as we walk through chapter 12 together, I want you to try to reconcile what we spoke in this Apostles' Creed that we gave as a call to worship. And I'm going to read chapter 12. I'm going to break it up into two sections to digest it, and then we're going to pray and we're going to jump in, okay? This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We humble ourselves before your mighty throne under your mighty hand. I'm absolutely convinced, we are convinced, that you are here to speak to us, that we might understand it. And so that is our prayer, that you would open up your word, that we might behold its beauty, that we might worship you in truth, Lord. And so we commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you've never been exposed to Revelation before, quickly, it's highly symbolic, but it's not a parable. It's highly symbolic in this way. It gives vivid imagery to explain to you what life is going to be like between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. That's it. And the book tells that scene seven different times over and over and over. So it's nothing sequential about Revelation. It goes through it over and over and over. It's almost like an NFL replay camera. We're like, I don't know, did he step out of bounds? And they go into that camera, and they're looking at 15 different angles at the same play. This is the same thing that Revelation's doing, because Revelation wants you to understand why is life like this. Revelation really does want you to understand who God is and who you are and what your life is going to be like in this land right now. Wasn't it written to the first century church? Probably somewhere around 80 or 90 A.D., and, and their biggest problem was persecution and Rome was beating them down. But it was also written for you, because in many ways, even if you don't experience persecution like that, you're getting beat down. Life is tough, sin destroys us, relationships are falling apart, work is frustrated, kids are hard, and on and on and on. So Revelation is meant for you right now. And yes, you heard it rightly, a woman and a dragon, and a child and a wilderness. And these mean very significant things to your life today, so let's get on it, all right? So the first thing I want you to see in this text is you have an enemy. You, ha you have a personal enemy. Now, I don't like conflict, so I would, I, you know, 
you probably don't either, but you have an enemy. There's some new players now. So it's no longer the two witnesses and the two lampstands. And the, he's using different imagery, and it's very personal. And I like that, quite frankly. It's easier for me to understand who these people are and what's going on. But as we move into 12 and the rest of the book, it's less about the church and more about Jesus versus Satan in the kingdom of darkness. So just feel that shift. So there's new players. Let's go through them. You have an enemy. Who's the first player that we see? It's this woman. She's radiant. She's clothed, has put on the sun, right? She's walking on the moon, and she's got a diadem or a crown that has 12 stars on it. So who is this woman? I will tell you now, just get to the punchline. This woman represents the faithful family of God for all time. The Old Testament saints that hung on to the promise and the New Testament saints that were walking in the victory of Christ. She represents all of them. So you might say she is Israel or the church, This is who she represents. Uh, How are we getting that? Well, if you were reading this in the first century and you had a Jewish background, this probably would have made a little more sense to you because it would have reminded you of Genesis 37, chapters 37, verse 9, this novella that ends uh, Genesis, the last several chapters, all the way to 50, and it's about Joseph. And in chapter 37, verse 9, it talks, he has this dream, this little kid, and he dreams about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, and he, they're going to bow down to him because he's one of the stars too. And so it's not about that. The, the point is this would represent to Israel, um, Jacob, who's Israel, and then his wife and the 12 tribes of Israel. They would have seen that immediately. But they would have known being on the other side of the resurrection, there's more to it. These 12 stars represent not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the 12 apostles. She joins them together. Isn't that great? She joins them together and she's radiant. And she's got problems. Do you have problems? (laughs) She got problems. Here's her biggest problem. She's got to give birth. And on her delivery team, she finds out there's a bad actor. And he happens to be a red dragon. And he's there not to help her, but to devour her child, which means to execute her child. Because this red dragon is who? You got it. Satan. And we'll, get, and we'll understand what that means. And she is really not doing anything other than trying to deliver this kid. So get the imagery. Israel delivers the Messiah. Israel's born a Messiah, a Christ, the true king. But she's under persecution. This dragon is smarter than her, stronger than her, and knows how things work. So that's who she is. Who's the red dragon? Right off the bat, red blood. So it's not the blood of the lamb. This dragon creates blood from the saints. So you have an enemy. So who is this? Um, This is Satan. This is the ancient serpent. There's three things. We haven't got to the rest of the text, but three things that uh, are, are... identify this red dragon. One, he's Satan. Uh, You can see that over in 7 and following. The ancient serpent, verse 9, devil, Satan, deceiver of the whole world. So yes, it's true. Your instinct is right. The red dragon represents the devil. So let's talk about that for a minute. The devil or Satan. So the devil is is, um, kind of the Greek term, and it means just lying liar. You are a slanderous traitor. That's what it means. Now, 
Satan it really pushes to the Hebrew form of the word, which is Satan, which means adversary, your enemy. So you have a lying, liar, slanderous, traitorous enemy who's going to set up against you. Well, not me, the church, right? No, you. The best thing he can do is get you out of the church. You ever watch a nature show? Which animal dies first? The slow one? Well, <laughs> no. If the slow one's in the middle of the pack, they're fine. Who dies first? Yeah, I'm just going to eat over here where nobody is because I'm going to live my life. No, they're always, they, they go quick. So the ones that wander off the pack go first. He knows that. So he's an adversary. He's a lying liar. And this is not just, these aren't just new players. These are old players because this is a very old conflict. Where it says, ancient serpent, that would key us right there in verse 9. I know we haven't got there yet. And the great dragon was thrown around the ancient serpent. So that would make us go back to Genesis. We do this all the time in Revelation. And we would go back to Genesis 2 and 3, where there's this beautiful garden where God sets up with Adam and Eve. And he says in chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall surely eat from every tree of the garden. The ancient serpent comes in and says, hey, Eve, I know I've been here longer than you, so um, I don't think you know the Lord. I know him. And I'm just wondering, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any of the trees? Did you pick it up? He pushes the restriction. Did God say you shouldn't eat of any of the trees? He's already lying. And he's doing it in a way he's smarter than we are. He's an angelic creature. He's much higher in creation order than you are. You are no match for him, especially linguistically. Is that what he said? That's weird because I thought he was, I used to too think he was a good father. But no good father that I know of restricts anything from his kids, does he? That's weird. Why would love do that? I don't think he wants you to have it because he knows you'll be like him. Yeah, wait a minute. There's some logic there. And so you know the rest of the story. They decide that they need to have the freedom to define good for themselves instead of trust God. And then God judges the ancient serpent. And this is what he says. Chapter 3, verse 16. I will put enmity, that's war, between you and the woman. And between you and her offspring. He, so somebody's common, that will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We go a long way. And we see it happen, don't we? We see Satan ready to go. Let's get this kid out. Because he knows when this child is born, his power is in jeopardy. What kind of power? His power over you. He's got you. He's got you. So this is the ancient serpent. And the male child is who? It's Jesus the Redeemer, the one that was promised through the line of Eve. And Jesus is born, right, son of David, and he's killed. All right? He tries to work through Herod in the local area, but it didn't work. Jesus dies after his ministry. But the text says he's caught up to God 
So that's ascension. We'll get there in a minute. And the church is put in the wilderness. That's your life. So before we go much further, you have to understand this, friend. You have a personal enemy. Has anybody seen the usual suspects? It's like 1995, so probably before you're born. It's a, well, I'm not going to even say it's a good movie. But here's one thing in it that's funny. One of the guys says, um, man, how does he say it? That's the greatest trick of the devil, convincing the world that he never existed. Because this crime syndicate looks like it doesn't have a crime boss, but the guy's like, no, we, you just don't know who he is. He's there. It's like a black hole. You see the contours of what it's doing to light and matter, but you don't see it. You have an enemy. He's ancient. He's smarter than you. You don't have a solution for what he's got for you. Secondly, you're at war with him. What kind of war? Well, this is, this is a war that's unseen, and it's a war of propaganda. Let's go to verse 7 and finish up this chapter and listen to how this plays out. Now, I want to tell you that the first stanza here is a replay of what you just heard about the woman and the serpent. It's, again, it's looking at it from a different angle because now you're going to see Michael and Archangel fighting the serpent. and there's, it was, It's the same thing. It's happening during the ministry of Christ. Verse 7, now the war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So when the, drangle, when the dragon's tail sweeps those stars out of heaven, probably speaking about the fall of Satan and his judgment pushed out of Eden and those who are... Uh, um, uh, those who are like, uh, help me with this word, allegiant, right? So those who are, are, are loving what he's saying, that we can run this place better than God, are going with him. And you see those show up in the New Testament as demons. So the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. That's resurrection. And there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Again, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, key word, the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's real to them. And they love their lives not even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. Well, what about the church? And when the dragon saw, this is verse 13, and the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, just like Exodus 19.4, same idea, to the place where she is to be nourished, which is the presence of God, for time and a time and a half a time, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. He's lying to her after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman. Do you remember in Genesis when the flood comes and the, and the, the, the deep fountains burst out in the water? Now it switches. The earth is opening up and helping her. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's you. 
on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Friends, you're at war. It's an unseen war. And the Apostle John's not making this up. He's seen it before. He's seen it in the book of Daniel. If you look at chapter 8 in Daniel and chapter 12 and even chapter 10, you see this war going on. You see uh, Daniel being told there will come a day when all hell breaks loose. Apparently, chapter 12, I'll just read this very briefly. At that time shall rise, this is speaking of our time, Michael the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble which has never been seen since a nation till that time. But at that time, your people will be delivered. Friends, this is old. This has been happening for a long time. The culmination is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Evil threw everything they had at him, and now they're gunning for you. Satan had one goal, to kill him. Here's a pro tip. You need, you need to know your enemy, right? The art of war, know your enemy. Satan always wants power. He wants power over you. He looks like he's in power. That's why it says, right? The great dragon, seven heads, ten horns. <sighs> what else does he have? Seven diadems. Have you ever met somebody at a party that's trying too hard by the way they dress? You're like, ah, right? I don't want to be the one that says, but you're trying too hard. He's trying too hard to look like Jesus. He's trying too hard to look like by his words and by his actions, by his infiltrating through government, uh, through legitimate power structures, and through culture structures. He wants you to see him as good, as reasonable, and as in charge, he wants that. He needs that. So he looks like he's in power. He also speaks like he's in power. He's a deceiver. He deceives the whole world. Did God actually say, Eve, I don't know. I don't, I, do you really want to worship a God like that? I don't. And he's an accuser. Do you pick up what he's doing? So it's an unseen war. It's a war of propaganda. And this is, this is how he fights you. Now, I know you've heard this before. This is never going to fly, friend. God might know of you, but he doesn't really want you. You've seen what he, this, this, is, this is Satan. You've seen what he's done, right? You've seen what she's done. You, you see how her mind thinks. You can't possibly want her. This is what he's doing all the time. And belief does this. You choose to believe either what the lamb says in the gospel, or you choose to believe what the serpent says. Son or serpent, you get to choose. But whoever's word you believe, you're giving them power over your life. If you believe the accuser, you belong to him. If you believe the son, you belong to him. There's no, there's no tension, friends, you, right? And so for the church, you're believing in the son, but then you're listening to the accuser. And it causes all kinds of problems. So friends, you have an enemy, this enemy is gunning for you. You are at war. But it says right here, this is not where it ends. It says right here, but he was defeated. And let me, and let me just say this. Are we really talking about Satan and demons and angels and things like that? Are we in 2021? Are we talking about that? Did I just say devil? And I'm talking to you. That's not an image. That's a real personality. Yes, I am. So two things I would say to you. One is you know that most cultures in the world believe in the, the idea or the, the personal God and some form of devil, 
some sort of evil creature that rules things. So if, if we're going to say, okay, that's just ridiculous, that's fine. But realize you, you really, it's cultural snobbery a little bit. And secondly, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't measure everything. I believe in science a lot. I believe in empiricism. But friend, there are th you're a creature. There are things that you don't have the ability to measure, and therefore you believe they don't exist. Don't be duped, okay? I know we don't talk about the devil much, but Scripture does. So we need to deal with that. So you need to understand you have been given, not even given, you've been handed victory in this. Do you see this? How you handle that gift is very, very important. You've been handed it. Yes, he's been defeated. Well, when did he get defeated? Well, the text doesn't go into great detail because we know. It will later, but he's defeated in that he was caught up to God. That means ascension. He walked out of the grave. The red dragon did kill the child. Jesus, the son of David, walks out of the tomb. He continues to teach and to preach. He sets his people up for success. He ascends and he pours out the Spirit of God. So he's caught up to God. This is how he was defeated. The resurrection defeats death completely. It's the one outcome that the kingdom of darkness has on you that you have absolutely no solution for. And Jesus has that. And you see how he's defeated is through resurrection, but you see what happens to him. He's thrown down out of, I don't even know how this works. He's thrown out of God's presence even more than he was before so that he can't even accuse you anymore. He's thrown down to the earth, and this resurrection, this defeat, means that his ability to deceive the nations is gone. Well, does that mean that nobody believes him? No, lots of people believe him. But he has no absolute power to deceive the nations. And we'll see that later as we get into Revelation. So his ability to deceive you is being limited. He doesn't have that. See, in the garden, he was moved out, wasn't he? But so, was, so were Adam and Eve. Here he's thrown down. He's cast away. Just like in the first creation, he's moved out. In this new creation, who is Jesus, he's expelled, but still here. And then we see this very important part delivered into the wilderness. Do you see that? It happens several times. The woman's pushed out into the wilderness. God prepares a place for her. Let me read something to you. Again, we can't understand this unless we understand the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's one safe place for you, friend, and it's in the desert. And you will kick and you will scream and you will argue with Moses. We should have, we should have died in Egypt. At least we had good food there. And you will see the loss that you endure and, 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 and the searing loss that you endure. And you will say, this is stupid. I'm going to do anything to get out of this desert. But you, there's no way to the promised land. There's no way to get there outside of that. In fact, it's not that God is just oh, sovereign over your suffering. He's actually using it to put Satan to death and to finish him and to make a mockery of him that you would hold on to the testimony of the Lamb when you suffer? Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. People that know that they aren't accused before God because of what the Lamb has done. 
and then their life becomes a living sacrifice and a testimony of God's power and beauty and grace and love, that's who. That's who. That's who endures the wilderness. Remember how the wilderness went with Jesus? I'm going I'm I'm to remind you. Matthew 4. You can read it later. Jesus comes. He gets baptized. Think Red Sea parting. He, he was not a sinner, but he takes on and identifies with the sin of his people. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Let's go to the desert. 40 days, not 40 years. Jesus is tempted by who? The ancient serpent, personally. He's starving. He's 40 days in, and Satan's like, I don't know. It's just weird to me that you're the son of God, because what dad lets their kids starve? You know what you should do, right? If you are the son of God, take this stone, get bread, eat. Aren't you starving to death? Where's, where's God the Father? I don't, this is weird. You should talk to Eve. She knows better. You know what? See if he loves you. Jump off of the building. Because it says in your word, right? Your word, his angels angels have charge over thee. There's only one way to know if God loves you, Jesus. Tempt him. Go jump off of a building. In fact, forget all that. I know what you're here to do. You're here to be a ruler, right? Psalm 2, right? You get it? You're going to be born. You're going to have the rod of iron and the nations will worship you, blah, blah, blah. I'll give that to you now. You don't need the cross. His plan is awful. Friends, listen to this, and this is so important. I don't think you know how hard it was for Jesus to endure that. He was not despondent and just like, ah, yeah, yeah, I got to go. No, I think it was everything he had to trust in the Lord through that. Satan knows how to lie to you in your own voice. It's right here in Matthew 4. God's using scripture, Jesus' own words against him. The accuser knows how to make you believe things that you think come from your heart and from your circumstance and that are reasonable and logical, and you act on them. He really wants to be your daddy. He wants this universe, and he's going to do He's furious. It's like a little kid that loses a balloon at the fair. They know I ain't going to get it, but he just starts wrecking shop. Kicking, it's like my old dog Rocco. We'd leave for three days. He'd rip every plant out of the garden. He's fed. He's just mad. Rest in peace, Rocco. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Following Jesus is going to cost you. But you know who's in the desert? Jesus. Jesus met God there. God brings Israel out of Egypt through the desert because he's there. So, what does this text have for you? I don't know what you think your biggest danger is in life, whether it's death or losing a job or being single for the rest of your life. I'll tell you what your biggest danger is. Deception. Being deceived is your biggest danger. It is. Being deceived is something every single one of us has to deal with. We went out of the desert. We don't believe God's will brings us there. It's a lie. We don't believe we've been given victory. We believe the accuser. We won't listen to the words of God, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We won't believe that. But listen to what it says. They have overcome by how? The blood of the lamb. Do you believe that? 
I'm shaking my head too, but I have trouble with it. You overcome, you win by the blood of the lamb. You're going to listen to the son or listen to the serpent. You're never going to win that way. You struggle with this sin so badly, clearly you're not a child of God. It's lying to your own voice. You're never going to get over this. You're never going to belong to him. You're never going to finish this race. Just give up now. Hey, jump off of a building and see if he loves you. If God really loved you, you wouldn't feel like this. And you got to call that lie out. You conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. When you know that, that spits out of your life in love, right? And just a love that is willing to lose everything. And that becomes how you live. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. No. God has always been moving all of history to his final glorious end in Christ Jesus. Do you want to come? God wants his people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and other religions. No. Give your life away. Love until you feel it. Love until you lose. Lose your privacy. Lose your money. Lose your freedom to love others. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. No. You are on this earth for one reason. It's called worship, but it means that you would know, love, serve, and eternally enjoy God forever. And in that, your heart is happy in the Lord, come what may. Otherwise, you have to have circumstances to be happy. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. False. He's in the desert with you. Your life depends on it. And good people go to heaven when they die. Maybe, but you're not going to find them. Certainly not going to find them in this church. Because Scripture says God justifies sinners by the blood of the Lamb. Period. That's your win. If you believe anything else, you're believing a liar. Your greatest danger, friend, is being deceived. So hold on to the blood of the Lamb. Hold on to His Word over your instinct and over your words. Let God's Word be the most plausible voice in your life Live for him, love like that, and you, let's, let's live in the desert, right? It's okay. He's with us. You can trust him. He's covered it all. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we just pray this blessing on our church. We pray that we would not run from the desert, that we would know, Lord, that you have overcome and defeated our greatest foe. We would know and understand that we would run together as your people, and we would love everyone as you have loved Lord, and we would spend our lives willingly giving it all for you. There's no law against that, Lord. And so our prayer as your people is that we would be so convinced of your love for us, which is displayed through you giving yourself for us and vindicated and realized through your resurrection that we would never look back to Egypt and wonder why we don't go back. In the name of Jesus, amen.